0: chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You may need to look in your table of contents. It's an Old Testament book that we oftentimes don't go to, but we're going to be in 1 Samuel over the next couple of weeks and months possibly. But as we start this morning, I want to begin by drawing your attention to a proverb. Proverbs 16, 18 says this, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And I want this verse to echo in your ears this morning as we think about pride because pride is one of those things that every single one of us struggles with. It's deep in our hearts, and here's the scary thing about pride. Oftentimes, we can be blinded to it. We can be blinded to pride and not even know that we're in its clutches because it's it's fooled us, it's deceived us. So here's a question for you this morning. What does blinding pride look like in the life of a, quote, religious person? What does blinding pride look like in the life of a religious person? Now, most of you have come into this church today, and you would probably consider yourselves religious. I mean, you you wouldn't be in church unless you thought yourself spiritual. You you trusted Christ for salvation. There's many other places you could be on a Sunday morning. And so most of us here would consider ourselves to be somewhat religious. But is it possible to be quote-unquote religious and try to look good to everybody else And try to put up on a good front and go through the motions and sing the songs and give your tithes and offerings and kind of show up and listen to a sermon and go through all of the motions and look good on the outside to everybody else and look real religious and look real showy, but yet in your heart of hearts have pride and be hypocritical and not obeying Jesus. In essence, can you fake worship? So what kind of heart do you have this morning? What kind of heart do you have? Do you have a heart that's kind of religious? A heart that wants to put on a show? A heart that's not soft to God? A heart that's hardened, a heart that's blinded? Or do you have a soft heart? Do you have a pliable, do you have a moldable, do you have a bendable heart that's ready to obey Jesus? This morning we start a new sermon series on the life of King David. But before we get to King David, we've got to talk about Saul. Because the rejection of Saul is the setup, next week we'll get to it, of the anointing of, of David as, as king of Israel. And so we get, to second, uh, we get to this episode in 1 Samuel 15 where we see God reject Saul because Saul rejected God. He was blinded to his hypocrisy. He was blinded in his pride. So we're going to read this whole story. It's a little bit long, but it's a good story. So let's read together 1 Samuel 15. And if you just know a little bit of background, Samuel is the prophet that God has sent to lead the nation of Israel spiritually. Saul is the king. He's not a very good king. He's the first king. The one good thing we can say about Saul is he's tall. That's why they chose him. He was tall. All right, so 1 Samuel 15. both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Tellium, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel, when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep, and of the oxen a sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and an idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you've rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Sorry, that was a PG-13 section there. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house in Geboah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of over Israel this is a difficult passage of scripture that brings up some difficult issues and so what I want to do this morning is I want to tackle it from two different angles the first two questions we're going to ask four questions of this passage of scripture the first two questions deal with God how are we to understand God second two questions how are we to understand us as people And so there's going to be some deep questions we're going to ask, but very practical questions on how we live out our faith in the real world. And so there are some questions as you read this passage of Scripture that you automatically should be struggling with when you read these about the nature of God. And we're going to address those this morning. So here's the first question we've got to ask. And hopefully this is the question you were thinking as you were reading this. Here's the first question. How can God order The complete destruction of a people and be just and good. Right from the very beginning, in verse 2, the Lord says, Go, strike down the Amalekites and completely wipe them out. Man, woman, boy, girl, and even the animals. Totally wipe them out. And this comes as a direct command from the Lord himself. He tells Saul, go wipe these people out. It's striking. You should be struggling with this. You should be asking the question, now wait a minute. This doesn't resonate with what I believe is true. Why in the world would God command the complete destruction of the Amalekites? Why would God order this quote-unquote ethnic cleansing? Well, I want to challenge your thinking. It's not ethnic cleansing. God did not destroy them because they were the Amalekites. It was an ethical cleansing. God destroyed them because they were sinners. Now, what's the issue with the Amalekites? Why are they so in God's crosshairs as a people? Why were they the target of God's justice, the Amalekites? Well, if you go back to Exodus, they were the very first pagan nation that attacked Israel when they came out of the Red Sea. So when Israel emerged from the Red Sea, if you remember, Moses held up his staff and, and, the, and the Lord was fighting for them, but then when his, his hands got tired, the Lord stopped fighting for him. And, and so um, the Amalekites were destroyed, partially. But it's interesting because back in Exodus chapter 17 and in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Lord says, I'm gonna blot out the Amalekites off the planet. My anger is against the Amalekites, I'm gonna blot them out. God is angry with them because of their sin." Their pagan sin against God's people. And so all the way back in Moses' day, God's anger burned against the Amalekites. And so we have to come to the question then, is it just? Is it right? For God to order Saul to totally wipe them out, man, woman, boy, girl, spare nothing. And the answer that we've got to come with from the Scriptures, yes, God is right to do that. Now I want you to think about something for a moment. This episode in 1 Samuel is 300 years after the Amalekites attacked the Israelites when they came out of the Red Sea. So in a sense God has given this pagan nation 300 years to repent. God's been kind. God's been slow to anger. God has been waiting patiently for these pagans for 300 years to repent and they have not. They've remained in their sin. And God has every right to punish sinners who persist in sin because He's holy. Now, this is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. Sin must be punished. Do you want a God who never punishes sin? Do you want a God who never executes justice? Do you want a God who just lets bygones be bygones? Do you want a God who's kind of willy-nilly, and at the end of the day, he never rights any wrongs? Do you want that type of God? Or do you want a God who's just? You see, the Amalekites are a picture of what sinners in rebellion against God actually deserve. But here's the beauty. God has sent Christ to die in the place of sinners who deserve his justice. And on the cross, Jesus Christ took the justice that we deserved, the punishment that we deserved, all the anger that God has against sin, against the Amalekites. It's a picture of what Christ took in his body so that we wouldn't have to experience that. It's also a picture, the Amalekites being totally wiped out, is a picture of eternal judgment. You know, God just wiped them out. But in the Bible, it says those who die in their sins, those who die unrepentant will spend eternity separated from God. And so a holy and a just God, a righteous God, a sovereign God has every right to hold sinners accountable for their rebellion. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has been sent to take the punishment that we deserved. And so the gospel is, yes, God has to punish sin. The good news is he's punished that sin in Jesus so that we wouldn't have to experience that punishment. So when God, when God punishes the Amalekites, it's a picture. It's a picture of the gospel of how God, as holy in justice, has to punish sin. Now, this passage should shock you. I'm not saying I understand it. You may not understand all of it. You may have a little bit of difficulty. But in the end, when you come across passages like this that you don't quite understand, as a Christian... At the end of the day, you've just got to bow before God and say, I may not understand it, but I bow before you because you're sovereign and I'm not. You're God and I'm not. And you worship him. But then you thank him because he sent Christ to die in your place to take that punishment. We want a God who punishes sin. And thankfully, he's punished that sin in Jesus Christ so that we would not have to experience that punishment. Now, in verses 4 through 9, you find out that Saul doesn't obey. What does Saul do? We'll get to this in just a moment. He doesn't obey. He kind of picks and chooses what parts of God's command he's going to obey. He spares the king and he spares all the good animals, but he doesn't fully wipe them out. We'll get back to that in just a few moments. So the first question then is, man, how can God order the complete destruction of a people? And the answer is because he's God and he's sovereign and he has the right to punish sin. But here's the second question that you probably struggled with as you read this. Here's the second question about God that we really need to struggle with. Does God actually have regrets or did God somehow make a mistake or was God caught off guard in what Saul did? What does verse 11 say? The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king. The very last verse, verse 35, the Lord regretted that he made Saul king. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that God is fickle, that God was kind of experimenting with Saul? God didn't know the outcome. God didn't know what was going to happen. God was frustrated. God didn't have the foresight. God was caught off guard. God made a mistake. God wasn't quite sure what he was doing. If you have the King James Version, it makes it even more confusing because it says there, God repented. God repented. And that confuses us because it makes it sound like, well, if God repented, that means he must have done something wrong. How in the world can God repent? How did God make a mistake? Is that what this means? What does it mean? Well, obviously, there's enough passages of Scripture that teach that God is sovereign and that God is not surprised and God's not caught off guard and God's not frustrated. We don't have time to look at all those. But it does not mean that God was somehow caught off guard that God didn't have the foresight, that God was was surprised. That's not what it means. The only other place in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word is used, where God regretted, surprisingly, is right before God destroys the world in the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, we find these words. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I am sorry that I made them. Same Hebrew word. Does that mean God didn't know that people were going to sin? God didn't know how bad it was going to get. God's like an afterthought, maybe I should probably do this flood thing because I'm really surprised at how sinful these people are going to be. That's not what it means. Here's what that Hebrew word means, and this is where we've got to really think deeply about the emotional life of God. It means God experiences grief sadness over sin god experiences deep emotional grief over rebellion we don't have a cold distant god who's like a cosmic computer or a machine but we actually have a god who feels grief when people sin that's what the word means god felt grief over saul's disobedience Now, this is complex because when you get into the emotional life of God, you're you're going into deep waters, and we can't even begin to understand all the things about the most infinite being in the universe. But this word means that God experienced emotional grief over Saul's sin. And it's no surprise that the writer of, of Samuel links it back to Noah. What did God do in Noah's day? God rejected the earth, destroyed the earth, and found one man to build an ark. What is God doing here? God is rejecting the king because of his sin, and he's choosing another man, David, to build a kingdom. So this regretting doesn't mean that God's fickle, God's clueless, God's frustrated, God doesn't know what's going to happen, God's cut off guard. What it really means is that God shows emotional sorrow over the sin of his creation. And it's interesting because in this chapter, God actually answers himself. It's kind of confusing. God, do you make mistakes? God, do you regret? God, are you caught off guard? No, because God answers it. Look at verse 29. In case you're getting confused, God kind of gets us back on track. Verse 29. Also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. He's the glory of Israel. God doesn't doesn't need to be regret regretful or surprised or caught off guard or to repent because god doesn't make mistakes he's sovereign all the time numbers twenty three nineteen. god is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind has he said it and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it god doesn't change his mind god's not caught off guard god didn't like somehow get surprised at what saul was going to do what it means here is that god felt sorrow over the rebellion of saul Now, these are two deep questions that we've got to wrestle with. Number one, how can God order the complete destruction of a people? Because he's just and he has the right to. Does God have regrets? Does God make mistakes? Is God caught off guard? No, absolutely not. Let's think about this practically for a moment. Think about your personal life before God for a moment. Think about you personally before the living God. Think about your sin right now. Does your sin grieve God's heart? What does Ephesians 4.30 say? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you were sealed by the day of redemption. We must never forget that God is personal. He's not a computer. He's not a machine. He's not a cold, distant being up in the sky. He grieves over your sin. Now think about unrepentance for a moment. Not only does God grieve over your sin, but what does he do if you're unrepentant? If you continue in your sin... If you continue in that sin, if you go your own way and you never trust Christ for salvation and you die in your sin, God, as just, has the right to punish you the way He did the Amalekites. But He doesn't just wipe you out, you have to spend eternity in hell separated from God. But this is where the beauty of the cross comes into play again. Think about the cross for a moment. Our sin is offensive to God. Our sin grieves God. Our sin must be punished before a holy God. Sin is a big deal to God. And what what does this God do? Is he cold? Is he he distant? Does he just say, figure it out for yourselves, humans. What does God do? God says, no, I'm going to enter right into the sin I'm going to send my son, and he's going to bear that sin in his body. And Jesus Christ is going to cry anguish of tears. Jesus Christ is going to bear our sin. He's going to bear the punishment. He's going to bear the suffering. So you and I would never have to experience that suffering. And so Jesus Christ is the one who answers the, the, the sin problem. That God punishes sin in Jesus. And when you acknowledge that, when you acknowledge that you're sinful, when you acknowledge that you're accountable, when you acknowledge that your sin grieves God, when you acknowledge that your sin deserves God's punishment, when you come to that point where you own up to that, and you acknowledge that, and you confess that, and you repent of that, guess what? The Bible says you'll receive salvation. God will forgive you based upon Christ. You can have eternal life. God will smile upon you because of his grace. So the first two questions are about God. Second two questions about us. And we see this reflected in Saul. So here's question number three. What exactly was Saul's sin? Now before I answer that question, I want to show you the key word that shows up in this passage of Scripture around eight times. Now back when we were in Deuteronomy chapter 4, we saw this word. It's the word Shema. Here, O Israel. It's the word Shema. It means to listen, but it doesn't just mean to have one, you know, words go in one ear and out the other. The word shema, the word listen in the Hebrew language means I'm going to listen with the intention that I'm going to obey and not just obey partially, but I'm going to wholeheartedly obey. That's what the word means. And it shows up almost eight times in here. Look at how the passage starts. Look at verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Shema. Listen with the intention of obeying the words of the Lord. Don't just listen half heartedly, Saul. Don't just give lip service. Don't just in your heart say, I'm going to go halfway, but listen with the intention that you're going to obey. Now, look at verse 19. Samuel, shocked, he says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Now, it's translated obey there, but it's the same Hebrew word, shema. Why didn't you listen? Why didn't you obey? Why didn't you wholeheartedly follow Shema? And what does Saul answer? Come on, Samuel, I obeyed. I did exactly what I was supposed to do. I've listened. What does he say? Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've I've gone on the mission. I did what you told me. I, I did it. And then Samuel gives this poetic statement about what the Lord requires there in verse 22. To obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of lambs. And then in verse 11, you've really got the issue. When God says I regret, in verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He's turned back. In other words, he's turned his back upon me. Literally in the Hebrew, that word can be repented. But think about repentance the wrong way. Saul repented the wrong direction. You know, when you repent, you turn from your sins and you turn towards Jesus. What Saul did was he turned from God and turned to his sins. He repented in the wrong direction. He turned the wrong way. And the culmination is in verse 23, where Samuel flat out says to him, God's rejected you. God has rejected you. And what's your ultimate sin, Saul? You've rejected the word of the Lord. You've rejected the word of the Lord. So that's the big sin. Saul, you've rejected the word of the Lord. You have not shemaed. You've not heard. You've not obeyed. But here's the thing about it. Here's, we can all look at that and say, okay, Saul didn't listen. But here's the issue with Saul. He was blind to it. He was blind to it. He didn't, he didn't get it. He thought he was being religious. He didn't think it was that big of a deal. He was picking and choosing what parts of God's word he wanted to obey, what parts of God's word he actually wanted to follow through with. And so his tragic downfall is not in a vacuum here. You see, here's the big sin of Saul, rejecting God. But there are three, quote-unquote, little sins that lead up to the big sin. What are the little sins? What are the little sins? Let me point three of them out to you. And all of these show that Saul is blinded in his pride. He's he's clueless as to what's going on. Here's the first. His pride in making a monument to himself prevented him from obedience. Now now just picture in your mind Saul here. He's, He's happy. Man, I've wiped out the Amalekites. I've caught the king. I've got the best of the spoils. He comes hopping back. He's giddy with joy. And what does he do? i'm going to set up a monument to myself hey i'm the king i did a cool thing let me build a statue to myself that's what we see there in verse 12. what does verse 12 tell us samuel rose early to meet saul in the morning and it was told samuel saul came to carmel and behold he set up a monument for himself that's the pattern of saul's life now most of you here would not admit that you're setting up a monument to yourself If I were to go to your backyards, I probably wouldn't see any statues of you. Now, I may see some fathead posters of your kids in your rooms. No, I'm just joking. But sometimes we set up monuments to ourselves. And sometimes we set up monuments to our kids. And we worship them and put them on pedestals. Many of you may be guilty of this. Are you the type of person who wants everyone to think how good you are? You want to draw attention to yourself to, let, to make yourself look good in front of everybody else. And you're the kind of person that you get really bothered on Facebook if somebody doesn't quote like your post. Or they don't comment. And you may like go days like fretting. They haven't liked my com they haven't liked what I posted. I want to look better. I want to build myself up. I want to make myself look better than I am. You want to draw attention to yourself. Maybe you've guilty of building a monument to yourself, and it could be through social media. Who knows? That's the first thing, that, the little sin that built up to, to Saul's big sin. Here's the second little sin. Under the guise of looking religious, he was blinded in his selective obedience. Now, what was he supposed to do? Now, we dealt with that earlier. What was he supposed to do? Totally wipe them out. Man, woman, boy, girl, king, everybody. Does he do that? No, he says, I'm going to keep the king, because that's kind of my trophy, and I'm going to keep the good, the good animals. The good animals, it was basically partial obedience. And so Saul, Samuel shows up in verse 14 and says, "Hey, hey hey Saul, I, I see a problem here. I hear animal noises. Where are these animals coming from? What's going on here? You were supposed to You were supposed to destroy everything." And Saul's nonchalant about it. He, he thinks he's doing something good. He's thinking to himself, "You know what? These animals would be awesome to bring to church. And I could bring them to church and we could be really religious and and I could actually sacrifice them to the Lord. He'd be so happy with me. But what did God say? Destroy them all. So here's what's going on. He's being selective. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Picking and choosing how we obey is still disobedience. You see, here's what Saul's thinking. You know, I can just put on a religious show here. I can let everybody know how spiritual I am. I haven't really obeyed God, but, but you know, I'm going to look good in church. And what, is, what does Samuel say to him? In verse 22... Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So basically what he's saying is, is, Saul, you can look good to everybody else. You can look showy. You can look religious. You can be real hypocritical. You can put on this disguise that you're this religious person. But in your heart of hearts, Saul, you're not obedient. You haven't obeyed me fully. Your heart's not there. Your mouth may be there. Your outward posture may be there. You may be going through the motions, Saul, but your heart is not there. I'm asking for obedience, not this outward show. Don't try to fool me, is what God's saying. Don't fool me, Saul. I told you to destroy all of them, and you're bringing in these things, acting like you're religious, like I'm going to be happy with you. And I've rejected you. But here's the big issue, the the real issue in in Saul's life that really led to his ultimate downfall. Here's the third little sin. Actually, it's a big one. He feared the approval of men instead of fearing the living God. Hope you caught it. Verse 15, look look at verse 15. He's given an excuse. Saul said, they've brought them from the Amalekites for the people, the people spared the best of the sheep. I'm just following the people, Samuel. It's what the people want. After all, it's about the people. I'm not really the leader. It's the people. I'm just doing what they want. Verse 21, he says it again. But the people took the spoil. Blaming it on the people. Samuel, I'm just going with the crowd. I'm just doing what the people want to do. I'm living in fear of the people. It reminds me of what was said of the Pharisees in John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, here's here's Saul's mantra. Everyone else is doing it. Haven't you ever heard your children say that? Dad, I want to watch that movie. Everyone else is doing it. Dad, I want to go to that party. Everyone else is doing it. Dad, I want to do so-and-so. Everyone else is doing it as if that makes it right. In the proverbial words of my mom, when I was growing up, she said, well, if everybody went and jumped off a cliff, would you go do it? Does that make it right? And see, Saul finally realizes it. Listen to his confession in verse 24. He confesses it. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I, look at that, feared the people and I shamad their voice. There's the word shema again. Instead of hearing and listening and obeying fully God, what is Saul saying? I've heard, listened and fully obeyed the people. He got it backwards. I feared the people. I lived in fear of people. I'm more concerned with my reputation. I'm more concerned about looking good before the people. I'm more concerned with following the crowd. After all, everyone else is doing it. It's the people. Samuel? You know, fear of other people is a real issue we struggle with. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us struggle with this. Sometimes we fear rejection from others. So we'll do whatever we can to try to win their approval, and then we're controlled by them or we crave someone's approval so much that we will do whatever we can, will compromise just so that we are accepted by them. We want to fit in. We want to be accepted. We want to be affirmed. We don't want to look weird. We'll do whatever we can to live in fear of people and let people control us when what we really should be concerned about is are we living in fear of the living God? He's the one we're going to have to stand before on the day of judgment. And so many Christians are afraid of people. What are they going to think? How am I going to fit in? How am I going to look? What's my reputation? All these types of things. And these three sins really built up to the big sin. He made a monument to himself, partial showy religion, and then he feared men. And ultimately, those bubbled up to the surface, and in the end, he rejected the Lord because he failed to obey and listen to the Lord. And here's the final question did Saul actually demonstrate authentic repentance? It's a difficult one. He's owned up to his sin, hasn't he? He's confessed it. He's a little bothered by it. He's been rejected by God. The kingdom has been torn from him. But is he just inconvenienced over what it cost him in the eyes of the people, or is he truly repentant? You know, you've got that moment where Samuel's leaving and, and Saul says, don't go, and grabs his robe and rips it. And Samuel looks at him and says, that's a picture of what God has done to you. He's ripped the kingdom from you, and he's going to give it to David. And it's interesting because in verse 30, we don't really see a repentant heart in Saul. Look at verse 30. What, what's, what's Saul most concerned about here? He's gotten caught. He's gotten called out. And he's gotten rejected by God. But notice what he's most concerned about in verse 30. Then he said, I've sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. What's his main concern? I want to save face. I don't want to look bad in front of my people. I don't want to look bad in front of my countrymen. I don't want to look bad in front of the other elders. Samuel, say something good for me so this goes well. He does not have a heart of of repentance. And as a matter of fact, if you caught it, he never once in this passage of Scripture ever prays to Jesus or ever prays to the Lord. He actually prays to Samuel to pray for him. He never goes directly to the Lord himself. What's he most concerned about? The approval of people. Sadly, in the life of Saul, we never see repentance, we never see a transformation, we never see him being broken. You see, when you truly come to that point of repentance, you don't care about your reputation. You don't care about how you look before others. You don't care about the consequences of the sin. You don't care about how it's inconvenienced you. You don't care about any of those things. The only thing you care about is, I want to get back into that right relationship with my God and I want to please Him, no matter what the cost. And if I look like an idiot or I lose friends or I have to face the consequences or it goes really bad for me, that doesn't matter. The most important thing is my relationship with God and I'm willing to face whatever happens to get that back so i would submit to you i don't think saul ever repented you see repentance means a mind change it means to have your mind changed your mind's changed over who you are your mind changes and and you come to realize that yes i've sinned and yes i've walked in disobedience and and then you begin to by the power of the holy spirit you actually start turning from those behaviors you see repentance is different than confession confession just means i'm sorry I'm sorry I did it. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm really sorry. That's confession. That's not repentance. Repentance means, yes, I'm sorry. Yes, I, I got caught. But repentance means I'm actually going to change. There's going to be a transformation. There's going to be a difference. And it may, may take time. may not be instantaneous. But there's a demonstrable change in your life. And see, here's the issue. God has rejected Saul And he and Samuel part ways, never to see each other ever again. And it grieves, it really grieves, distresses Samuel. We'll we'll see this next week. And how does the chapter end? Saul left. Samuel leaves. Saul has the kingdom torn from him. Samuel's bitterly crying. And then there we have it again. God regretted that he made Saul king of Israel. Again, it doesn't mean God made a mistake or God was caught off guard. It just means God's sad. God is grieved over the rebellion of this man. Now, this is the setup for King David. Everything in 1 Samuel chapter 15 shows a man whose heart is not after God. Saul is a man who does not have a heart after God. He has a heart after himself. He's blinded by pride. It's all about him. It's all about his reputation. It's all about how he looks. It's all about building a monument to himself. His heart is embroiled with himself. And next week, in contrast, in 1 Samuel 16, we'll see that God chooses a man after his own heart, David, who's polar opposite, to be the rightful king to sit on the throne of Israel. So are you, this morning, blinded by pride? Maybe you can't even see it this morning. You've got to ask God to take the blinders off. Are you just giving partial obedience kind of picking and choosing what areas you're going to obey God in, trying to look religious. Maybe you're a people pleaser. You're living in fear of men and what other people's approval and and your reputation. Is God grieved by your disobedience? Well, here's the answer. If you find yourself in that situation, go directly to the king. Saul did not go directly to God. He went to Samuel and said, pray for me. Thinking that somehow man would get him to God. As opposed to going to God himself. No, don't do that. Go directly to the king. And and, and what king am I talking about? The ultimate king. Jesus Christ. Go to the king who died on the cross the king who rose again and the king who stands ready to forgive all who would come from him to, to him in repentance and faith and has the power to actually change you. He has the power to take the pride out of your life. He has the power to take that fear of man out of your life. He's got the power to take that selfishness out of your life. Christ has the power this morning to release you from bondage. So would you come to the king and ask him to overcome your blinding pride by opening the eyes of your heart? Let me ask you to pray this morning and bow your heads. And I want you to evaluate your heart in light of this passage of Scripture, in light of how God has spoken to you this morning, and spend some time in silent prayer before the Lord.